0: If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll be looking at a few verses in the middle, but be reading the whole chapter. As you might have seen already from the bulletin, this morning is Reformation Sunday, which means it's a day that we set aside to remember a massive movement of God in His church doing during the 16th and 17th centuries. And though we may tell stories of men and women who serve God during this time, please understand we're not worshiping men, but we're worshiping God. We're really seeking to give thanks and praise to God because He is the one that worked within them and allowed them to do all that they accomplished. We're giving glory to God for His work of reviving and reforming of His church, which frankly allows us to be here today. No Reformation, no Crossway Christian Church. By God's grace, we know that these reformers recovered a sharper vision of the very gospel that we believe. And it was from that gospel clarity that a reformed church was produced, a church that better knew God and His saving grace, allowing it to better live according to God's ways. And there is an insert in the bulletin this morning about the the kind of core theology around which the Reformation revolved. And you need to understand that that was not something they invented. Uh, That was, in fact, something that they looked back to the earliest church's writings and said, look, this is what they believed, and the church has drifted from us. Let us go back to those convictions of the early church. Let us go back to those convictions from which we see in the Bible itself. And so we see that even the theology of the Reformation back then becomes the basis for our own statement of faith today. Now at the very heart of this this movement among God's people to to go back, as it were, more closely to, to God Himself and to living the way that He wanted us to, to worshiping the way that He wanted us to, lay this convictional belief that Scripture alone should be the guiding rule of the church's life and faith and practice. That doesn't mean that history and tradition cannot be helpful to us. But the battle they fought was to see history and tradition as being at the very least co-equal with Scripture in terms of authority, or even rising above Scripture as an authority for God's people. And they said no. Clearly, the, the early church fathers read the Bible, and what they understood the Bible to be saying was this, that the Word of God alone was to be the supreme standard by which everything else was to be judged. They believed and emphasized this conviction because they were convinced that Scripture itself taught it. And so even today, it's important that we see the Bible indeed does teach this idea that they called sola scriptura, that Scripture alone is the supreme guide for life and godliness. And in order to do that, we want to turn in God's word to 2 Timothy 3. And again, we're going to be zeroing in on verses uh, 15 through 17 of 2 Timothy 3. But in order to see the the larger context in which Paul gives these, these verses and it's teaching, we want to back up and begin reading at verse 1. Paul says, "'Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty.'" Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted and mine and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far for their folly and will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry? May God bless the reading of His Word. This morning, hear it and believe. Paul is writing to young Timothy, giving him instructions on how to serve as a pastor at the church of Ephesus. But this was not just a letter to Timothy. This was, as it were, an open letter to Timothy. In other words, it was not something that just came in the post and and Timothy would file away somewhere on his desk. No, it was directed towards him, but with an eye also towards the entire congregation. Paul knew and even expected that this letter would not just be read by Timothy, but would be read publicly by Timothy in all the church when it was gathered together for worship. Thus, Paul is here in this letter not only instructing Timothy, but the church itself on the nature of ministry for and the life of the people of God. Both here and in, second, in the rest of Second Timothy, Paul says that the life of God's people is meant to be governed by the preaching of God's word. And there's a great temptation today to not let that happen, to let many other things guide us, to allow culture and philosophy, whether academic or homespun, to shape the life of the church. But here, Paul makes clear that the greatest need of God's people is God's word. And I hope that that will be clear to us today. That is my aim. I want us to see how that is true, that the greatest need for God's people is God's Word. How that is true from a few ideas that Paul conveys to Timothy about the nature of Scripture itself. The first thing that I want us to understand is the necessity of Scripture. We need to understand the necessity of Scripture. We need God's Word, but why do we need it? Why do we need the scriptures? Notice what Paul tells Timothy in these verses. He says that that there is much that stands against us and the church in this life. In fact, he says we face the weight of culture's sin. We face the weight of culture's sin. Paul tells Timothy to remember the saving power of God's word because he faces a, a world that desperately needs to hear it. In verses 1 through 9, he describes a world that is at war with God. In fact, as we'll see in just a minute, a world that has infiltrated the church and yet is at war with God. And from Paul's day to to our own, we live in these last days. And he says they are characterized by people who are lovers of self, lovers of money proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, bu- brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That that does not sound like a good thing. And, and, and if I could just say something as an aside to all of the young people here today, if you want to Um, look up here, let me just say, do you realize all of the sinful things that that Paul lists in this passage? Things that, that are not good, not helpful, and right in the middle, what does he say? Disobedient to parents. The greatest temptation you will face right now is to disobey your parents. And you need to understand that God sees that as something just as vile as people who love money, who are abusive, who are unholy. It is a key sin that God hates because God has put your parents as the authority in your life right now. So for you, the greatest way that you can show your love for God is to obey your parents. All right? Well, what do we do with all these things? There are many many people around us in the culture that we could identify with these very attributes, couldn't we? Probably people that you work with, maybe even your neighbors. And the reality is it's not just people in the immediate sphere of our life, but throughout our culture. And, and, And feeling the accumulation of these kind of people, what we see is there is now a weight of pressure on us to join them in their sin. It is not just simply that we observe passively, but we feel the weight of temptation to join in those kinds of activities. And often that pressure uh, is not just overt, but it's sneaky. It's clever. It comes in from the back end. You go back through and just scan those verses, verses two through five, and I guarantee you that describes much, if not all, of the entertainment that we take into our lives. And when I say we, I mean we. You read through that. Most of the things that that are meant to give us pleasure and excitement as as we tune into television or watch a movie or read a story in some way, not only depict but glorify these things. But the pressure gets to us, even if we don't think it does along these lines. The American Academy of Pediatrics recently did a study that showed that even over the course of a day, parents could be desensitized to violence explicit sexual content. They sit down a thousand parents, set them before clips of popular movies with all different kinds of ratings. And after the end of of a block of clips would ask them, at what age level do you think is appropriate for children to watch those things? And at the beginning, they were very sensitive. They would say, oh, I think that's like 18. That would be like R or whatever. But showing clips from the same movies, that the same kind of levels of violence and sexuality over and over and over, by the end, they were down to saying, oh, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, that would be fine to go see those things. Just over the course of a few hours they become desensitized in their life. And my point in saying that, not to say, don't go ever see a movie. That's that's a different conversation. That's going to be far more nuanced. But what I am saying is this. Do not think, Christian, that you are above being desensitized to the culture around you. Do not think for a minute that you are somehow prevented from, protected by, not letting all of that stuff influence your mind and your heart and what you believe and what you accept. You are even now feeling the weight of that pressure. There may be things here that you recognize, things that, that, that you enjoy and you're already feeling the Holy Spirit pricking on you and, 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 and the, the pressure that exists there. Within the culture that around us, there's a spiritual drag, a weighted temptation from all parts of society to incite our sinful hearts to do activities in rebellion against God, to do whatever it wants Opposed to God and his word. And he says that 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 kind of attitude, those kinds of people have even come into the church, he says. To the point that they don't want to hear the right preaching of God's word. That they don't want to live according to God's ways. But like those that rebelled against Moses in the desert, so they want to rebel against Paul and Timothy even today. They are professing believers who drift away from the clear teaching of the Bible in favor of trendy and politically correct doctrines. You can't help if you're on Facebook or watch the news to even see those headlines today. And what does Paul tell Timothy? Avoid those kinds of people. Avoid people who oppose the knowledge of the truth. At the same time, as we think about the, facing the, the, the weight of culture sin, we need to continue to seek out the wisdom of Christ's salvation. That's what we need. We need the wisdom of Christ's salvation. Wisdom. Wisdom. Paul says, remember the example I gave you, the example that you followed. Remember what you yourself have believed. Verse 14, continue what you learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you were acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. This is why we need the Scriptures. This is the necessity of God's Word, because we are steeped in a culture of sin and we need to be saved from it. And the only way that we come to experience that salvation is through the gospel which comes through the proclamation of God's Word word. We need the liberating power of the gospel of Christ that brings new life, freedom from sin, and forgiveness of sins. And then having put on Christ by faith, that's how Paul says salvation comes, right? To make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Then we need the ongoing sanctifying power of the gospel that leads us to love sin less, be conformed to Christ's image, and to serve faithfully God's plan until He returns. In other words, we have not just just from death to life, not just from lost to saved, but the fullness of salvation that takes us as spiritually dead beings and begins recreating us with new life into the image of God that will only be fulfilled, only be finalized and done and over when God Himself returns and raises us back up from the dead with new glorified incorruptible resurrection bodies. We need the fullness of salvation that God gives, and it comes only through His Word. And that's part of the reason why the Reformers so emphasized the preaching of God's Word. Wasn't that the prescription that Paul gave Timothy that we saw in chapter 4? Here is what you face, and now here is the antidote God's Word. So what should you do? What do I charge you in the presence of God, His angels, and anybody else? This simple command, preach the Word. So the reformers understood this well. You had had worship services that would have no preaching at all. None. For months sometimes. You would just have an elaborate service that revolved around the Lord's table. But what the reformers said is, if you do not have the word preached, you can't rightly understand the table. Because the table is connected to the word. The table is a visible representation of the gospel message which must be preached. So, so... The reformers didn't invent preaching, but they sure made it popular. They saw it as important because, as Luther used to say, people need to hear the living voice of God. How do they hear that? By the work of the Spirit in the midst of the church through the Word being read, being taught, and being preached. From Paul's instructions to Timothy, we need to understand the necessity of having the Scriptures in our life, not just once, but in a repeated, ongoing way, a pervasive way that we might experience the fullness of God's salvation. And if we're going to be motivated to really appreciate that need, to understand it well, then we also need to understand the authority that Scripture has. We need to understand the authority of Scripture. The question is, how can we actually trust the Bible to give us what it promises, to give us salvation, wisdom that leads to faith in Christ? Paul says, Remember, Timothy, all Scripture, verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul wastes no time being clear on why the Scripture should have an authority in our life. He affirms that Scripture is breathed out by God. That is a a key text for the doctrine of inspiration that the church has. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible is inspiring, as if, you know, I read that, I read that poem, and I found it to be so inspiring. It made me want to, to, to breathe fresh air and go out and save a kitty cat or something like that, okay? Or what, what? I don't know what kind of poetry you read. Maybe you don't read any. I'll give you some authors after church if you don't. Nevertheless, that's not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about inspiration like, like this. Breath. The breath that you're breathing right now to give you life and exhaling to everyone else in the room. Paul says that the Scripture, the book that you have in your hand, is so much the Word of God, it's as if God Himself spoke it, as if it was the words that came off His breath and onto the very printed page. That's why it has authority in our life. Now, some of you are clever, and you're going to immediately say, but wait a minute, it didn't come from God that way. We, we know this letter is from Paul to Timothy. A man named Paul wrote this letter to another man. How can it be God's Word? How can it be inspired if it came from a people? If people wrote down the Word of God? Well, that's a very good question. I'm glad that you asked that. Peter actually helps explain it for us. In his second letter, the first chapter he says this to the christians in ephesus you ought to pay attention to god's word why knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation no one just writes scripture because they have ideas in their head no he says no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit now now that passage right there, which I think is the most clear, but we've got dozens of others that, that build into this. Help us understand how the Bible we have is penned by human hands, but also the inspired authoritative word of God. So, so you can imagine, Paul is sitting down to write Timothy a letter. He, he loves Timothy. He is his son in the faith. And he knows the difficulties and, and the experiences he's having. And so in Paul's mind, there are things that he wants to teach Timothy. There are things that he wants to say to teach him and correct him and encourage him. And the moment that he, he gets that, that parchment out and he drops the quill in the ink or begins dictating to someone else to write it down for him, God's Spirit so fills the life of the Apostle Paul. So, so 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 moves in and takes up residence that the very things that he writes down are also the very things that God wants written down in that letter. There, there are people that that now, especially with computers, can can plug these things in and do all kinds of all kinds of interesting studies on word uses and everything else. And what you see is Paul's letters all sound like they're written by the same person. You have the very personality of Paul imprinted, stamped on these letters. You have things like him saying, finally, and two chapters later, the book ends. That's a typical critique of a pastor, maybe an apostle as well. Um, you, You have him starting an argument and then getting sidetracked and moving on to something else. You have him giving examples from his own life and personality. In other words, unlike other religions, we don't believe that the book just fell from the sky one day. And we say, hey, look at that, a Bible. That's not the way God gave it to us. Nevertheless, what we see is that God uses means. He used the Apostle Paul in all of his failings. But in that moment, what he wrote is exactly what God wanted him to write so that it becomes the very Word of God. We know for a fact there's at least three letters that Paul wrote that he makes reference to we don't have. Should we be banging down the doors and trying to find those things because it's God's Word? No. Paul probably wrote dozens of more letters. That doesn't mean they're all Scripture. Through God's providence and other means, we come to know that the books that we have, we are confident, are God's Word, though penned by human hands, because God was superintending the process. Through the power of His Spirit, what Paul wanted to write is what God wanted him to write. And so, in this way, we can have confidence that the book that we have in our hand, the collection of 66 smaller books, is the very inspired Word of God. And if it's the word of God, that means it is an authority in our life. I mean, think about who God is for a second. I mean, just just, just think about who the Bible says God is. If He knocked on your door and said, I want to talk with you, would you close the door in His face? I should hope not. I don't think the consequences would, would be ones that you would want. And yet, every time we close the book and don't read it, that's what we're doing. If, if when the Word speaks, God speaks, if, if, if where, when Scripture speaks, God speaks, then, then we need to be opening the Word because it has authority in our life. Specifically, Paul says it has a profitable authority. In other words, it has an authority that is useful to us. Useful specifically, he says, in two things, two areas of our life. First, it has authority for Christian belief. It has authority for Christian belief. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof. Now, teaching and reproof are words that both relate to the beliefs of God's people. Teaching is not just a generic word uh, for teaching, but more of a technical word for doctrine. We might say the teaching. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying this, that whatever doctrine we believe needs to come from the Bible. It can't just be something that we make up. Right beliefs are built up by a study of, the meditation on, and proclamation of the truths of the Scripture. Furthermore, wrong doctrine, wrong theology can be reproofed. It can be called out by the Word of God. So think of the Bible like a tape measure used by a seamstress or a tailor. At some point they have in front of them a bolt of cloth and they make a measurement and draw a line and a piece is cut and is used to make something beautiful and the rest is discarded. And Paul says the same thing when it comes to God's word. It is the final arbiter between what is right doctrine and what is wrong doctrine. So someone says, oh, I think God is like this. Your first response is, show me that here. Well, I think we ought to be living this way. Show me that here. You hear Pastor John say something and say, I don't know about that. You come back and say, show me more here. Okay, This is the final statement for all of our beliefs, all of our doctrine. It is judged by the word and the word alone, not tradition, not denominations, not history. But Scripture is not just true for our beliefs. Paul also says that Scripture is profitable as an authority for Christian behavior. Scripture is profitable for as an authority for Christian behavior. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. As with teaching and reproof, correction and righteousness go together, but in the context of conduct. In other words, through the Bible, God gets the final say in how we think and how we live. So God exercises his authority over our life through the scriptures by correcting our sinful attitudes and behaviors. And at the same time, he builds us up into Christ. Through the word, he trains us for righteousness. Now think about what this means. Pastor Legan Duncan tells the story of listening to an evangelical Anglican pastor speak one time. They were at some conference and he was giving a devotional talk on Isaiah 50, He spoke about how God would restore and strengthen the weary ones with a word, with a word, his own word. And here's what the man said. You know, I very much resent the word-centeredness of the reform faith. I very much resent it because I like pictures, and I like video, and I like the images that are shown to me. And apparently after saying that, he went on to extol the amazing visuals of the latest Star Wars movie and all of the digital uh, jiggerpockery that they were able to accomplish there to build worlds and create lightsabers. But then he stopped after all of that, and here's what he said. Though I very much resent the word-centeredness of the Reformed faith because my personal inclination is to like pictures and images and video, I accept the word-centeredness of the Reformed faith because that's what the Bible teaches. You see what he did there? He says, this is my preference. I love looking at art. I love watching television. I love the visual medium. But guess what? God wrote a book. And he speaks through a book today through his spirit. So, so life, my life, the life of my church as a pastor needs to revolve around the book. My preferences are subsumed under God's authority. My preferences, my my, my, my inclination towards an ease of life, the norms of culture around us are not the final determinants for how we live and think. God's word is the final authority for how we live. And think He has the final say. By the grace of His Spirit, when we take take up the Word and listen to it and and look at the book by faith, then our lives can be conformed to the perfect image of God's Son. The Word is not just there to tell us how to live, but it gives us power by God's Spirit to live. From these verses, Paul teaches Timothy and so us today about the necessity of Scripture, about the authority of Scripture, and finally about the sufficiency of Scripture the sufficiency of Scripture. Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, when Paul uses the phrase man of God, um, I think it's clear given the context, he means the preacher, the pastor, the elder of God's people. Nevertheless, just because that's the primary audience, Timothy himself, that does not mean that it is not applicable to the rest of us, all of God's people. And so we read this knowing that Paul is looking at Timothy, but the entire church is meant to read it as well. So what is the reason, the purpose for which God gives us a necessary and authoritative Bible that we will be complete and equipped for ministry? That's what he says. So the Bible is not just there to learn facts from. It's not just a book of facts. It's not just a book of history. Now there's amazing history in there, there, there's, there's glorious facts in there, but it's to be more than that. It's not just about God's work of redemption through history in the past. It's also about the present. God's word is meant to be applied to the practicalities and even the tiniest minutiae of life and ministry Today. All of it can be addressed in such a way that we are left mature and growing as Christ's disciples. We never need to wonder, I don't know what God wants me to do. No, the answers are here if we will look at them with the eyes of faith. So, so two Peter is helpful again to us. When we think about this, he says that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through a knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. What is that? It is God's Word. So everything that we need for life and godliness has been granted to us with power through His Word. That means everything. Everything that you need. Any situation you encounter, God has equipped you for it here anything in your life and godliness. Now, in many ways, this is where the battle for the Bible is today in the evangelical world. We, we, we fought hard for inerrancy. That, that is to say that, that this is God's word from beginning to end, that there's no error here. But now, now the battle for the Bible, I think, comes to the issue of sufficiency. That's, that's where we punt. Many believers today will look to issues facing the church and say, the Bible is great for what it is, but so much of life isn't addressed in the Bible, so we need something else. We, we bifurcate our lives into two sections, the religious part and the non-religious part. And we say, the Bible's good for this over here, but we need something else for this part over here. I think the Bible is great for my spiritual life, but it doesn't really talk about the rest. So I need to go find help from somewhere else. Now, it's true that the Bible doesn't speak directly about everything, right? You, you, you will go through these pages, and go through tonight, today if you want to, and you will find nowhere the word abortion. You will find nowhere the word Twitter. You will find nowhere the, the term bioengineering. Nevertheless, the Bible addresses all three of those things, how they should be used and whether they're good or bad. The Bible speaks in ways... in. That God provides pervasive principles that address all parts of life. Any conceivable decision or event or person or idea that you will encounter and God has addressed it. We cannot say the Bible isn't enough. Now, understand what, what I'm saying here, the implications of this. This does not mean we just grab our Bibles and we hole up in a room and we never have interaction with anybody else. We never read any other book or listen to those advice, nor does it mean we ever go to the doctor or something like that. That's not what, that's not what the sufficiency of Scripture is about. What it's saying is that in matters of life and godliness, we do not need something else to tell us how God expects us to live what he expects us to do, and how we are to change as his people. I mean, just think about this. Think about what Paul's life would have looked like in his day. Think about all the cultural differences. You think about the languages. You think about lifespan. You think about medicine. You think about all those different things. But here's the simple reality. Life is no different. You can't name one temptation we face today that Paul didn't face in his day. It might look different, It might come through a computer terminal, but it was still there. It was still there. All of the anxieties, all of the pressures, all the things that we deal with that we would think, well, I'm not sure the Bible addresses that. Life does not change, folks. We, We might get smarter and we might get dumber, but people are still people. Humanity is still humanity. There is no temptation that is not common to man. Or more pessimistically, as Ecclesiastes would say, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. So do we feel like Paul didn't know how to live the Christian life? Peter didn't know how to live the Christian life? First century Christians didn't know how to live the Christian life because they didn't have all of the modern information that we have today? That's what some people think. But I find that to be an untenable idea. Here's some, let me give you some examples just to, to maybe put a fine, a fine point onto it. Because of the sufficiency of God's Word, we shouldn't assume that science has all of the answers to the origins of life simply because we now have more data. Sure, we have much more data, but we also have very different assumptions about how to interpret the data. Moreover, through the Scriptures, we not only have a person who was there when life began, but the person who actually caused and designed the beginning of life to tell us how it all happened. In my mind, that trumps a dude with a Ph.D., Likewise, we should not assume that psychology has all the answers about our problems because the Bible simply doesn't mention your specific uh, addiction or something like dissociative personality disorder. Someone like a clinical psychologist or even the DSM book, which describes and catalogs all manner of physical and mental disorder, will do an amazing job of observing and cataloging your symptoms. But here's the problem. That man or woman, if not a believer, doesn't understand your heart. Therefore, they can never get to the root of your problem. They can can deal with symptoms, but they can't get to the cause, which means they cannot provide real and lasting help. We are spiritual people, and all of our problems are spiritual in nature. doesn't mean all of our problems spring from our sin. No, sometimes people sin against us, and we suffer for it, and it causes us problems. But the Bible is capable of dealing with those things too, because it understands the heart. It is written by the being who created the heart. Furthermore, we shouldn't assume that the corporate business world has answers about pressing questions of organization and leadership because they have experience in things that Paul didn't. I hear pastors today and I see Christian organizations and they get so excited when the latest leadership book from the corporate world comes out. And they devour it and start trying to apply it to churches. You understand that that world has a completely different set of values and priorities and assumptions than we do. It distorts their view of people as well as management. They do not live for the glory of God. They're not driven by His command to love others as Christ loved them. And think more practically about this. How do you improve on the man that God himself says was the wisest who ever lived, Solomon, who organized an entire country? And he also talked about how to interact daily with people. It's called the book of Proverbs. How do you improve on that? Or Paul, who literally wrote the book on church planting and organization. Or Christ himself, who leads as the perfect shepherd above all. Now, lest you think I'm simply taking pot shots at people out there, I picked those three examples because at some point in my life, I have been tempted to doubt the sufficiency of God's word on those three key areas. It's very personal. At various times, In my youth, all three of those areas were places where I doubted that God's Word was complete and sufficient and that we needed something else. And by God's grace, God led me away from that temptation and showed me the sufficiency of His Word for all parts of life and ministry. God has spoken so that we might be complete, whole in Christ, equipped for every good work that He has called us to do. Whether that's parenting or evangelism, whether that's being a spouse or a global missionary, God has equipped us for everything He has called us to do. In 1492, while Columbus was sailing the ocean blue, a baron's wife in Bavaria gave birth to a little girl. That tiny gift from God was named Argula von Grumbach. 31 years later, this noble woman penned one of the most courageous letters ever written in the history of the world. She had heard of a young student named Seehofer at the nearby University of Ingolstadt in Germany and how he had been promoting the works of Martin Luther, the great reformer. Given the Catholic leadership of the nation as well as the university, this poor 18-year-old student was tortured because of it. Tortured into recanting not just his belief in Luther's theology, but even faith in Christ. Because she was from a wealthy family and they could afford it, Urgula had been given a Bible at age 10. The priests at the time said, you can't give that to her. It will confuse her. It will upset her. It will drive her insane. Instead, by the time she was 31, she was a walking Bible, spouting out Scripture all the time. Moreover, she grew up as the handmaiden to the queen in the court of Munich. And there she would have heard sermons and lectures by Johann Staupitz. Stalpitz was the professor who pointed Martin Luther to the gospel. Contrary to the popular beliefs of his day, Stalpitz taught that it was Christ's merits, not our own, that bring salvation with God. She had soaked in the Scriptures from a young age. She had heard clear gospel teaching. She became a believer in Christ and became convinced that Luther and the Reformers were right in their theology and understanding of the Bible. And so she became incensed, not just as a Reformer, but as a Christian about this young student's treatment. So she picked up her quill and her ink And she penned a letter to the professors of the university. Here's just some of what she said. To the honorable, worthy, high-born, erudite, noble stalwart rector and all the faculty of the University of Ingolstadt. When I heard what you had done to our Seehofer under terror of imprisonment and the stake, my heart trembled and my bones quaked. What have Luther and Melanchthon taught but the word of God? You have condemned them, but you have not refuted them. Where do you read in the Bible that Christ, the apostles, and the prophets imprisoned, banished, burned, or murdered anyone? You tell us we must obey the magistrates. Correct. But neither the Pope, nor the Kaiser, nor the princes have any authority over the Word of God. How in God's name can you and your university expect to prevail when you deploy such foolish violence against the Word of God, when you force someone to hold the gospel in their hands for the very purpose of denying it, as you did in the case of Varsatius That She goes on to cite over 80 passages of Scripture that she believes applies to this, in, this situation, showing that they're wrong. And then she even goes to offer to come and debate the professors themselves. Stipulating only this, the debate must be in German because she doesn't speak Latin. Now what gave her such confidence, such boldness to leave the expected station of of women in her day to challenge powerful and educated men? Nothing less than her complete confidence in the perfect authoritative word of God. And at the end of her letter, she writes this. Even if it might happen that Luther recant, that he goes back and says, I was wrong, I was wrong. I'm wrong about the gospel. She says, God forbid, but it will not disturb me. I do not rely on his, my, or anybody's intellect, but only the true rock of Christ himself. And here's the part I really love. What I have written to you is no woman's chit-chat, but the word of God. And I write as a member of the Christian church against which the gates of hell cannot prevail. Against the Roman church, however, they do prevail. Just look at the church. How is it to prevail against the gates of hell? God, give us grace that we may all be saved and may God rule us according to His will. Now may His grace carry the day. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for women like this. We are thankful for men like Luther. We're thankful for young men like Timothy and and elders like Paul who saw the great need and understood that what we need more than anything else is the living, the inspired, the inerrant, the authoritative, necessary and sufficient Word, Your Word, the Scriptures. That, Father, there is no life and salvation beyond them. There is no authority above them. There is no no need, God, for us to seek a changed life, a a joyous life, a healthy life beyond its pages. Father, you have given us many great gifts in this world, even in the church, men of God of whom we have books and sermons that are that fill entire vast libraries. And God, we rejoice that those individuals help us better understand the word, but they are no authority over it. Father, neither are we. So we pray that you would help us to put our lives under Your Word. That we would not so much seek to master the Bible, but to be mastered by it. That we would have right doctrine that would be seen in right living. That, Father, Your gospel would be made known and that many would come into Your kingdom as a result, all to the glory of Your Son. In whose name we now pray. Amen.